everyone and welcome back to that's insane a podcast where i talk about murder medicine and maybe more but most definitely more because there's a lot of weird shit out there i'm your host my name is aurelia um i'm sorry that i didn't post last week and on time this week Um, My work schedule and life schedule just got a little crazy and I wasn't able to make the deadline, but I'm going to try to make it up to you and give you guys an extra episode sometime this month because I have some planned out and then I have other ones that I want to do that wouldn't fit in with the schedule that I have in my head. So then I could make one of the ones that I want to do an extra episode, You you know, understand what I'm saying, but I'm sorry, my bad, and I try really hard to not let it happen, but it is what it is. Um, so today we have a medicine case, if you will, or we're going to talk about medicine more so. I really wanted, I really wanted this month the medical cases to be spooky Halloween related, which is very difficult. I have some ideas, um, as like the one I'm about to tell you, and then like a possible two-parter one where part of it is medicine and part of it is spooky, but I don't know. So the medicine ones might just be medicine ones, but I love a good theme. And if anybody, anybody that listens to this knows me, knows that I will commit to the theme, and the theme for October is spooky. With all that being said, today we are going, you know what? I always I always do that. I'm like, oh, I'm going to make it so mysterious. It's in the fucking title, Aurelia. You are titling these. It's not a surprise. Um, so today we're going to talk about folklore and the possible medical explanations behind them. So let's just go ahead and get into it. So many have heard of spooky creatures that come out during Halloween, like vampires, mummies, werewolves, etc. But where did these creatures come from? Of course, it's possible that they really do exist, but some think that, some think that their origin story has some roots in medicine. So today, let's talk about some of the most popular spooky ooky creatures and what medical phenomenon may have led to their creation. So let's start with vampires. So we all know the famous vampires like Dracula, Nosferatu, Edward. um, But when were vampires first noted? The first known reference of vampires was written in an old Russian in AD 1047, soon after Orthodox Christianity moved to Eastern Europe. The term... I believe it's umpir, upir, U-P-I-R, has uncertain origins, but they think it's me- it meant the thing at the feast or sacrifice. The vampire, like most folklore, were blamed for a variety of problems, usually diseases, since bacteria and viruses, um, or since bacteria and virus knowledge didn't really exist. So these um, are some of the theories on diseases that may be behind vampires. Um, so rabies. First and foremost, the name comes from the Latin term for madness, and it's one of the oldest recognized diseases on the planet. Rabies is transmissible from animals to humans, usually through biting. The virus becomes 
uh, non-infectious when it dries out and is exposed to sunlight. The time from exposure and symptoms, which is called the incubation period, can vary from weeks to months. So later in the disease, after the virus reaches the brain and causes inflammation, it then moves to the salivary glands and the saliva. By this time, animals or those infected begin showing signs of rabies, although they might be mild, but within three to five days, they show unmistakable signs, and within a week, they die. In the U.S., 90% of rabies in animals occur in wildlife, and the most common animals are raccoons, skunks, bats, and foxes. Contact with infected bats is the leading cause of human rabies death in this country, where at least 7 out of 10 Americans who die from rabies were bitten by infected bats. If you've ever been bitten by a dog or a cat and you went to the ER or urgent care, they'll ask about the animal status, and that's for rabies. Most domesticated animals in the U.S. and even feral cats and dogs have a very low chance of carrying rabies, but of course it's still a possibility. So that's why they like to make sure that the dog is up to date or can be monitored and tested or otherwise you have to get the rabies um, immunoglobulins, which is not very fun. That's why they usually ask if the animal is contained so they can monitor it for signs of infections, yada, yada. I just said that. Um, And in fact, if you are ever sleeping in a room and you wake up with a bat in the room, you have to be treated for rabies if you're unsure of your like bitten status. So like I um, actually had a patient a while ago who was cleaning gutters and they came in contact with a bat like they scooped it up when they were scooping up the leaves And their instinct, like when it fell, was to pick it up. And they weren't sure if it scratched or bit them or what. But we still had to, like, go through the process of doing the rabies um, vaccines and or immunoglobulins, which is actually my first time ever having to truly administer them. Um, So, yeah, just fun fact. Um, So what are the signs and symptoms of rabies? So general sickness, problem swallowing, excessive drool or saliva, fear of water, which is called hydrophobia, overly aggressiveness, um, altered sleep patterns, so like nocturnal animals awake um, during the day, uh, fear of light, biting at imaginary objects, which is called fly biting, trouble moving or paralysis, um, or a bat on the ground, I guess, because bats like don't chill on the ground. Um, But back to vampires and their connections. So in some folklore, vampires cannot cross running water without being carried or assisted in some way, which could be an extension of the hydrophobia. Other connections are like the fear of light, abnormal sleep patterns, aggression, which are all characteristics of vampires. The second theory is pellagra. Um, which is caused by deficiency in niacin, which is also vitamin B3, or the amino acid tryptophan. And tryptophan is that uh, amino acid that we think of with like Thanksgiving, like when you eat too much turkey and it makes you sleepy and blah, 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 even though I think there's research that shows that's not true. Anyway, uh, pellagra is caused by uh, diets high in corn products and alcohol. So when Europeans came to America, they would bring corn back, but they didn't wash it with lime, which is a process called nixtamalization, which can reduce the risk of pellagra. The symptoms caused by pellagra are the four Ds, dermatitis, diarrhea, dementia, and death. 
dermatitis is a rash or like abnormalities of the skin, like reactions. Um, and some people with pellagra also experience high sensitivity to the sun, which can obviously leave a person very pale. However, pellagra didn't exist in Europe until the 18th centuries, long after vampires origination. So do with that what you will. And then the third theory um, is a blood disorder called porphyria. Um, porphyria came, uh, porphyria became very prevalent among the nobles and royals in Eastern Europe. It's an inherited blood disorder that causes the body to produce less heme, which is a critical component of hemoglobin, and that's the protein in red blood cells that carries the oxygen. In fact, it is often referred to as the vampire disease. Some symptoms of porphyria include sensitivity to sunlight, which can lead to facial disfigurement, blackened skin, and hair growth, gum recession, so like facial disfigurement and repeated attacks of the disease, I guess it like it flares up, can cause the gums to recede and that exposes the teeth, which could maybe appear like fangs. At the time, some physicians recommended these patients drink animal blood to compensate for the defect in their red blood cells. Um, their urine is also very dark red, which could appear to the like the person is only drinking blood. And then lastly, like aversion to garlic. So the sulfur content in garlic could cause porphyria attacks, which can cause a lot of pain. However, porphyria is not just one disease, but it's a group of rare genetic blood disorders. For example, the type of porphyria that causes gum recession and skin disfigurement is called congenital erythropoietic porphyria and is extremely rare. About 1 in 200 cases have ever been diagnosed. There's also no true chemical or medical reason for the garlic aversion. While compounds in garlic can, act, uh, can activate an enzyme that destroys hemoglobin, it's assumed that those with porphyria would avoid garlic, but since porphyria isn't the lack of hemoglobin, but rather the buildup of tissue-damaging porphyrins, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, one of the websites, too, where I was like reading this, and I was like, this all seems like way too convenient of a match for like vampire characteristics. So I like looked elsewhere kind of to debunk it, and this was one of the things. And it was like, okay... And it seems like this disease is blamed for vampirism or whatever a lot. And um, it can, I, I don't know, like there was a whole page talking about basically like stop saying that porphyrism is the vampire disease or something. So some of this might low-key not be super, super relatable. Um, but yeah. So the next one is werewolves. So werewolves are mythical creatures that change in the moonlight and actually were actively hunted by the superstitious. So werewolf trials, much like the witch trials, took place well into the 18th century and the last known trial took place in southern Australia. The term werewolf actually comes from werewolf, which is literally W-E-R-W-O-L-F, so basically the same, which is an old English word that combines the words man and wolf. The concept of the modern werewolf has roots in Northern Europe, but descriptions of werewolves go back to Grecian times. So a Greek physician, Galen, lived from 129 to 216 CE, um, described a patient with the appearance and appetite of a wolf. The term clinical lycanthropy 
is the delusion that one is able to turn into an animal and was created from this description. So clinical, okay, sorry, that term was created from the description. Clinical lycanthropy is a psychotic condition where the patient has the delusional belief of turning into a wolf, and I believe it's zoanthropy, zoanthropy is a psychotic condition where a patient has the delusional belief of turning into an animal, like general, I guess. So zoanthropy is seen throughout the world, and the animals can be lions, tigers, hyenas, sharks, or crocodiles. I wasn't going to say it. I know y'all were thinking it too, but I wasn't going to say it. Another term for clinical lycanthropy is species identity disorder or species dysphoria, which can also fall under the umbrella of dissociative identity disorder. Um, Clinical lycanthropy is associated with altered states of mind that go along with psychosis, which is like delusions um, and or hallucinations, and only happens in the mind of the one affected. So a study done at McLean Hospital reported cases and proposed some diagnostic criteria that could be recognized, including the patient reporting moments of lucidity or reminiscing that they feel like an animal and that the patient behaves in a way that resembles the animal behavior. So those were some of the criteria that they suggested, like they have to have these moments of lucidity um, or reminisce that they feel like an animal, and then they also have to behave in a way that fits that animal's description. A review of medical literature from early 2004 shows over 30 published cases of clinical lycanthropy, and only the minority of those are wolves and dogs. So there have been two cases of a person believing that they were transformed into snakes, which is called ophidianthropy, I believe. We're going to go with that. In Japan, it is not uncommon for people to experience transforming into foxes or dogs, Uh, In 1989, a case study talked about how one individual reported a serial transformation going from human to dog to horse and then finally cat before returning to the human form. Like I said, this is a very rare condition and is mostly considered an expression of psychosis or dissociative identity disorder, but it can also be associated with drug use, withdrawal, cerebrovascular disease, which is um, like blood vessels in the brain kind of disease like strokes essentially um traumatic brain injuries dementia delirium and seizures there are also suggested neurological conditions and cultural influences that can factor into this what is the differences or changes in part of the brain that represents body shape um like body image and proprioception which is like awareness of the body movements Neuroimaging done on two people diagnosed with clinical lycanthropy showed that these areas display unusual activation, suggesting that when they um, when they said their bodies are changing shape, they may actually be perceiving those feelings. Generally, since it's strongly associated with psychosis disorders, clinical lycanthropy is treated with antipsychotics, sometimes combined with like mood stabilizers or antidepressants. So here are some case studies and examples of clinical lycanthropy. On August 15, 2016, Martin County, Florida sheriffs found a 19-year-old male on top of a bloodied 59-year-old man gnawing at his face, eating pieces of his flesh, and making growling sounds. The person was tased, kicked, and actually had to have the police dog finally subdue them. In the garage, they found a 53-year-old woman beaten, bloody, and unresponsive. 
Unfortunately, both the 59-year-old and the 53-year-old died from their injuries. Leading up to this attack, the 19-year-old had expressed to family members that he believed he was either half-man, half-horse, or half-man, half-dog, and he was diagnosed with clinical lycanthropy by a psychologist. A 20-year-old was admitted to a mental hospital after becoming increasingly agitated and having erratic behavior. He had no previous psychiatric history, but over the next few days, he would display psychotic, animal-like behaviors. And these behaviors included howling loudly, running abruptly, and walking on all fours. When asked about these behaviors, he was initially evasive, but eventually admitted he believed he was a werewolf and would periodically change into a wolf. Years before, he he admitted to having a vision of the devil and would hear random voices. After being placed on Ziprazidone, the animal behavior, which is an antipsychotic, the animal behavior eventually ceased altogether. A 25-year-old man was sent for treatment during a period of excessive hand washing, irritable behavior, decreased sleep, and acting like a buffalo. The patient said he had engaged in sexual activity with his buffalo and believed that buffalo cells had entered his body and were transforming him into a buffalo. He started obsessively washing his hands and genitals to avoid this transition, and he saw himself having buffalo body parts, causing him to be extremely extremely preoccupied with his appearance. He then started to act like a buffalo, which included nodding his head, walking on all fours, and seeking out grass or hay to eat. Ultimately, he was diagnosed with OCD and body dysmorphic disorder with delusional beliefs. He was treated with Prozac and Risperidone, which um, uh, is an antidepressant and an antipsychotic. And after six months, his body dysmorphia and hand washing were both reduced. This combined with another disorder that may contribute to werewolf existence is a medical condition called hypertrichosis. It might be hypertrichosis, but I'm going to stick with what I said. Hypertrichosis is defined as excessive hair growth anywhere on the body, and it can occur in both males and females. This is different from hirsutism, which is a term reserved only for females who grow an excessive amount of terminal hairs in androgen-dependent sites. We'll get into what terminal hairs are, but androgen-dependent sites are like hormonal spots. So like the chin, the jawline, uh, like armpits, pubic hair, things like that. Um, So there's a few ways to classify hypertrichosis. The first is generalized versus localized. The second is age of onset. So was it congenital? Were you born with it? Or did you acquire it later in life? And then the types of hair, vellus versus terminal. Vellus hair is lightly pigmented, fine, short hair that's often referred to as peach fuzz and is generally found on like the face, the arms, the stomach, and the legs. Terminal hair, <clears throat> terminal hair is coarse, thick, dark, and is found on the scalp, underarms, and pubic area. And then in men, it's also found on the face. As mentioned, this can be congenital. So congenital generalized hypertrichosis is a feature of several rare inherited syndromes where genetic errors cause dysfunction of proteins involved in the development of the hair follicle, which is what the hair grows out of. Acquired generalized hypertrichosis is usually caused by a drug, but it's also noted in patients with traumatic brain injuries, juvenile hypothyroidism, juvenile juvenile dermatomyositis, which is like a group of um, dermatologic, dermatological conditions, 
acromegaly, which is um, uh, when you're... Oh, fuck. I don't remember if it's not... If it's just when one... You know what? Maybe I should look this up before I before I speak on it. Okay, yeah. This is what I thought, but I didn't want to be incorrect. Acromegaly is the abnormal growth of hands, feet, and face that's caused by the overproduction of the growth hormone by the pituitary gland. I knew I had something to do with the pituitary gland. I just, I, I didn't want to speak incorrectly. Okay, so it can be part of the those things, acromegaly, malnutrition, and HIV. Congenital localized hypertrichosis can be seen in like hairy elbow syndrome, um, hairy palms and soles, hairy oracles, which are your ears, and hair on the nasal tip, which is like the tip of your nose. So that would mean that they were born with it and they grow it in these like odd places. It's an extremely rare disorder affecting only one in one billion to one in 10 billion and fewer than 50 cases have ever been documented. So again, who's to say? The rest of the myth behind werewolves, like the moon-activated shape-shifting, the silver bullets, etc., was all created by Hollywood in early werewolf-based movies, but it's easy to see how these two disorders together could have caused panic and raised suspicion that a beastly, mythical creature existed. It's also super possible, in my opinion, if you ask me, that people saw wolves and were like what the fuck and like if you ever seen a wolf like i guess if they like stand up like they could look like a giant human i guess i don't know so maybe they just like freaked out because of wolves and blamed it and then maybe they're you know the, the wolves killing their flock of animals and then maybe there was like a person that they didn't like and they were like okay well they're like turning into the wolf and doing it because they don't like me. Like, who's to say? People are fucking stupid um, all throughout history. Um, but the last folklore with potential medical basis is witches. But that's for another episode. The Salem witch trials and the fear of witches um, many centuries ago will be covered in the next one or maybe two episodes. I'm going to do like a nice brief overview of witches. Um, no, sorry. I'll do a decent overview of witches and like their um, possible medical origins. And I will do a light touch of the Salem witch trials because maybe that's that's a whole like research paper. I'll do a light sprinkle regarding the Salem witch trials because that's like a whole that's a whole thing and that'll take me a while to research because I want to do it right um but yeah that is folklore creatures and the possible medical explanations behind them so I really hope that you guys enjoyed that it was interesting to look up myself and I hope you guys are having a really good spooky season and a good October. I want you to do all the fall things. And I'm sorry that this episode is a little late, but I think it was well worth it. That's all I have for you. As always, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if you're enjoying this podcast. That means a lot to me. You can follow me on Facebook at That's Insane Podcast. I've been saying this incorrectly for a while, um, but it's my Instagram is that's insane underscore podcast. 
I've been saying it's that's underscore insane underscore podcast. If you've been following that page, that's not me. <laughs> I don't know if that exists, but it's that's insane underscore podcast. Um, I do not have a TikTok, but you can follow Aurelia May Makeup to watch me tell these stories in one minute clips while I do my makeup, although I'm pretty far behind, but they'll be coming. And then if you have any crazy medical cases, weird murder stories, or just weird shit in general that you want me to look into or tell me about, you can send an email to that's insane podcast at gmail.com. Until next time. Bye.